From Relay FM, this is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 26, recorded September 6, 2022. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell, and joined, as always, by our director of strategy, Julia Alexander. Julia, hello. Hey, how are you? Doing good. I had to put away all of my white suits because it's been Labor Day, and uh, so I can't wear those again until uh, they're back in fashion. All I, of your white suits. White. All my all white suits. My tan tan uh, uh, sport coats. Yep, I had to put those all away. How are you? Good. I was just thinking we should get you like a trumpet opening for when you say Master of Ceremonies. Ah, uh, yes. Do, do, do. Yeah, well, you just lean into the podcast. it. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, all right. Uh, here we are. Lots to cover. We should get to it. Um, I wanted to start. Uh, I have no. I have no follow up. I just have topics. How about that? Wow. Uh, the Rings of Power, the Lord of the Rings show on Amazon that they spent lots and lots of money um, in order to get. Uh, it, it premiered. First two episodes dropped. Amazon made shockingly made a an announcement about viewership. They said twenty five million viewers watched in the first twenty four hours globally. Um, Amazon, you know, never shares numbers, but they shared this number. Now we don't, what we don't know, we don't know what that means. Did they watch the whole episode? Did they just press play? And it's globally. So that makes it harder to compare to House of the Dragon, but seems good. Seems like, like, I mean, I I don't know if Amazon was ever going to not be happy with it, right? Because they spent so much money on it and that's part of the deal. But these numbers seem pretty good, right? I was just talking to a colleague about this because it's like the only thing that we've been talking about. And I feel like this is the perfect example of how everything in streaming comes with asterisks. Like yeah. everything is like, this is good. Here are 10 asterisks. And, I, and I, the one thing I will say is that it's funny to me that this, the way that the trades report on this are like, wow, you know, historic 25 million views for Amazon and, and even Game um, game, of, game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, even Hot yeah. D. Hot like, they D. Were like, they were like 10 million. For, and I was like, these shows were never not going to be watched. Like these shows mm. were always going to be huge shows for that. Like, there was never a doubt in my mind as someone who looks at this day in and day out that they were going to pull numbers, especially when Amazon is literally – you know, painting it or, or, or plastering, I should say, with like posters basically over its, you know, dot com website, right. which is one of the most frequented websites globally. And it was like, hey, if you pay for this, if you buy your dog food here, you can get this show for free. Um, here's what I'll say. Here's the asterisks. So I th- Jason outlined them really great a minute ago. One. So for what we here's what we know. Here's the best way to do this. The number four House of the Dragon refers to the U.S. subscribers for HBO Max and HBO. As of the first quarter of this year, we know that's about 48.6 million. The last time that that number was reported as just HBO and HBO Max was when they were still owned by AT&T. When it got combined with Warner Brothers, and now it's Warner Brothers Discovery, they started including Discovery Plus in the number of U.S. streaming um, accounts. So it's really hard to break out HBO, HBO Max, and and Discovery Plus. We actually have no way of doing it. So if we say it's about 50 million, like let's say it's the 48.6 million – Actually, the amount of people who watched House of the Dragon for that first episode is about 20.6% of its entire base, which is much higher than about the 12.5% of Amazon's whole base, right? 200 million Prime subscribers or members over 240 countries and territories, uh, 25 million watched, whatever that means. Um, That's actually much stronger than that 12.5%. But we don't know to Jason's exact point. Whether or not they just hit play, whether they they watched the whole episode, they watched both episodes. You know, my assumption is they watched uh, both, uh, you know, most of both episodes, if not at least the first episode. But the thing that keeps coming back to me, like as we go through these asterisks, is like everyone wants to make this an apple to apple comparison because we're so used to the box office and Nielsen ratings being the go to example of things. If NCIS did 10 million in the Thursday slot at 10 p.m. and Grey's Anatomy did 8 million in the Thursday slot at 10 p.m., NCIS had a bigger audience. And it was so much easier to say like that is apples to apples. Here's what we're seeing you know, before getting into like the demographic breakdown of it, we could point to that. If Avengers Infinity War did five, you know, a billion and, uh, I don't know, another movie did 750 million, we could say that movie had a stronger premiere weekend. It was the, it was the bigger movie. It's so impossible to do that in this situation where one company is saying in the U.S., in this time period, including both Nielsen ratings and our internal metrics across linear and, and streaming, we get this number. And Amazon's going, 
globally within our thing without saying exactly how many people or how many minutes were viewed of this show, we get this number. It's apples to bananas. It is, it, it is, it is impossible to compare. And the only thing this reiterates over and over and over again is that we need some kind of third party system that is like, you know, whoever it may be, that is like, here is how you must report these. Here is how you must do this going forward. And we're just, I mean, we're not going to get there anytime soon. I mean, look at, remember what we dealt with for years where with Netflix went from being like 70% of a show was watched to two minutes of a show was watched to now they just report in total hours viewed. And we right. know that a, a, and they and they count, they look at account viewing. So like accounts, actually, there's about three to 3.5 viewers per account. It's so insanely difficult to compare any of these that it's like, the best thing we can have as a takeaway is both shows have done great. Both shows yeah. have an audience. Yeah, they're doing they're doing fine. Yeah, and and I also there's an aspect of this which is, um, you know, get hyped. This is a this is part of the hype train. This is the this is the what other phrases can I use here? This is kind of a FOMO thing, right? Where it's like <laughs> everybody's doing it. You don't want to miss out. Everybody's watching these shows. You've got to watch them too. And it's part of that too. I mean, it's also saving face, right? It's like, well, yeah, we spent a lot of money, but look at the results for for HBO. It's it's a uh, look. Our franchise really is a franchise, and we didn't squander it in the last couple of seasons. Uh, people still want to watch Game of Thrones, and here we are. And that's all like fine, but as long as we know what it is and recognize it for what it is. And I know we talked the last time about how the real metric, I mean, they, they're they going to be able to see it inside, uh, even based on the premiere. But I feel like the real metrics that they'll be looking at and what we'll be trying to gauge on the outside is the decay rate, right? It's yeah. like, is like by the time you get to the last episode, which I think is like episode 10 of Hot D, and I think there are eight Lord of the Rings episodes. Um how are people are people watching it right away are they watching it at all how much you know because there's always bleed off that you never well no that's not true there are word of mouth hits that start at a number and by the end they're at a higher number but there most shows start at the premiere number and go down because people are like yeah i i tried it and i it just didn't grab me so Essentially, I guess what I'm saying is let's check in in a couple of months because yeah. that's the that's going to be the true measure of how these shows did is like, did people stick with them to the end? And and uh, are they primed for next season? Because, you know, premieres, you can market them. And I mean, it, it tells us something like I really believe House of the Dragon doing as well as it's done tells us something because I wasn't you seem very confident. I wasn't entirely confident that they were going to be able to bring back a Game of Thrones audience. And they did. They totally did. And Lord of the Rings is similar in the sense that I don't think people dislike Lord of the Rings. They didn't love The Hobbit, but like those are beloved movies. And so in order to kind of piggyback off of that and say, you know, here's a new story in that universe yeah i think it was a pretty good bet but like we didn't really know i'm not sure we i'm not sure we really know that i got I, i'm going in circles now it's like this is good but in the end um let's wait and see because in six weeks people may not be feeling so positive about one or both of these shows well and i think i was talking to another colleague about this the fundamental change because we were talking about house of the dragon numbers and we were saying like it's really impressive and to jason's excellent point the question is not just and especially for on a on a revenue and business side of the equation the question is not just how many people came in to watch that show the question is how many people stay with hbo max 10 months later and are watching other things and are kind of keeping up with the the platform and the reason that we really care about that again is because that value perception is 100 percent contingent on engagement which is 100 percent contingent on discovery so if people can find stuff that they're into they will stick with the platform the more that platform becomes a necessity the more likely they are to just agree and go along with price up um price updates when they when they increase prices you might grieve it you there might be some grievance but you're most likely going to be like okay well i'm going to pay for this the we'll see this play out really strongly either in favor or kind of against my assumption is in favor um when disney plus introduces its three dollar price hike in december my assumption is that a lot of people have disney plus especially in the u.s are going to say i need this platform enough that i'm not happy about the price hike but i'll go with it and so if we look at 
Game of Thrones, we actually have precedents for this, right? When HBO Now launched in 2015 in the fifth season of Game of Thrones launched, actually it was so funny, I was watching, and Jason will appreciate this, I was watching um, an old Apple keynote in 2015 when Richard <laughs> Plepler, who was the then CEO of oh, HBO, yeah. got on stage to, to show off HBO Now as the app on the Apple TV and debuted one of the trailers for, for Game of Thrones season five, and it was kind of this big deal. The difference with that when that launched, because Netflix was huge at the time and HBO was like, we got to get in on this, was that it made it super easy for people to sign up. And they did. They saw massive subscriber increases when Game of Thrones was on. But it was also easier to get rid of it. It was also easier to say, well, okay, I don't need this anymore. I don't really need access to The Sopranos 24-7. So I'm going to cancel my, my my service. If you think about how difficult it is to cancel um, cable or how the value proposition of HBO within the cable bundle made a ton of sense, especially with like the movies that were on, on reruns or whatever it might be, it was far less of a thing, although still definitely a thing, but far less to cancel HBO on cable than it was to cancel HBO now because it was so easy. And this is this moment that we're in right now where it's easier to cancel HBO Max for a lot of people in terms of what they can um, see as their perceived value of it than it would, I would imagine, Amazon. It's much harder to cancel Amazon Prime for people who use the retail side and are like, well, I'm, I'm going to still buy dog food. Like, I'm therefore, the show is going to be there. But I do think when we look at what metrics really matter for these companies, it is like, okay, yes, they're in th- those shows have to have strong viewership because those shows have to bring in customers. That, that's the first thing, first and foremost. As much as we are in this new media world, having a hit, and this is why we care about numbers is because we want to know what a hit is. Having a hit is still very, very important. Having that cultural zeitgeist moment is still is what people are still chasing. But in an easy to sign up for, easy to cancel economy that we are in with streaming right now, the bigger question for these companies where the cost of acquiring a customer is much more expensive than the cost of keeping a customer and uh, and engaging with that customer. The question is, okay, you know, plus 60 days post finale, post uh, plus 180 days post finale, are they still engaging with content on the platform? And that's why my favorite metric that HBO Max released was that in uh, that Game of Thrones was the second most watched show on HBO Max behind House of the Dragon. And it was in its eighth consecutive high week leading or increasing um, viewership week leading up to House of the Dragon. So people were engaging with Game of Thrones, whether that's new customers who are getting into it, whether that's older customers who are re- or current customers who are returning to the series. And they're probably engaging with other stuff on the platform. That is the metric of HBO Max success beyond the, sh- the, the one show, the $200 million show that is designed to bring people in and to have that cultural zeitgeist moment. So, you know, apples to bananas. Yeah. I'm not sure they're both fruits even. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll, I mean, we'll keep an eye. I'm watching them both. You, you watching them both? Yeah. You know what? I, I love house of the dragon. It's entirely my speed. It's I'm, I'm very into like anything that has, uh, not the show succession, but anything that's like built around the idea of family succession. I'm, I'm very yeah. into yeah, you know, Rings of Power, I I like. I'm not 100% sold on it, but I do like it. And I mean, the production value is just like insane. Rings of Power, I, I'm watching them both. I'm liking them both. But yeah, you're right. Like House of the Dragon is soapy in a way. I mean, I would say even like Succession, the show, right? It is about family dynamics and power dynamics and all of that stuff that you sort of recognize from uh, Game of Thrones. The Rings of Power, you know, is telling this overarching mythic story, and they're also doing a really slow build. I think, I, which I appreciate the confidence in it, but it, it is a it is a slow burn, and they're only doing eight episodes. So I'm like, okay, so season one is 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 set up maybe, um, and, and I like it, but it's a very different kind. We're like, oh, they're fantasy shows. It's like they're really different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in terms of. I mean, beyond the genre, just in terms of what stories they're trying to tell, Rings of Power is this good versus evil on a large scale uh, where there's a, you know, there's a, a rising enemy and and uh, what, you know, what's going to happen there. And and the House of the Dragon is, yeah, it's it's politics and yeah. violence, but the monsters are not the rising evil is just, uh, you know, other people. <laughs> so. <laughs> And dragons. I mean, you love and, dragons. and dragons. Yes, dragons, dragons too. The dragon stuff's pretty cool. Anyway, I'm enjoying them both too, but um, this is right up my alley. 
Um, I like this kind of stuff, but I'm struck by just how, how different, like one of them is like, let us talk about, I mean, very Tolkien, right? It's like, let us talk about mythology and, and, uh, and set up the, the different races and how they interact. And, and, uh, eventually we'll get to, to the, 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 the point of it and how's the dragons like, Oh no, no, there's family. And this guy wants to be King. And this guy wants his kid to be King. And, and she wants to be queen and, uh, you know, what's going to happen. And that's like, it's very different. Yeah. Uh, okay, you noted a really interesting milestone that happened and that was reported first by uh, Casey Moore of What's on Netflix, which is that Netflix this month, um, or maybe in August, hit the hit the uh, 50% mark in terms of originals versus catalog content on its service, which is something that's like six years in the making since David Wells, the CFO of Netflix, said they'd be pushing to reach that uh, that area and remember uh, we've been talking in, in in the last few years about netflix relying on the office and friends and things like that to drive their services and the fear was you know those are going to be taken off and be put on what it turns out is hbo max and and uh, peacock and so uh, what are they going to do well they're going to invest in new content and they're going to get there so they got there except as you pointed out um as the quantity of netflix originals has grown customer satisfaction for netflix subscribers has decreased so um what let's start there and then i I think there also is the bigger question of like okay six years ago the strategy was increase originals is that still a strategy that makes sense for them yeah netflix is kind of in this really weird identity crisis oh man Right. They are. Like the, 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 I think it's a, the only way to kind of look at Netflix. And it's this moment of, you know, it's, it's funny. We're, we're talking about movies, uh, my colleagues and I, and we we're just, and I said, you know, Netflix actually has the most theatrical films coming out for the rest of the year, it, which is a weird statement because it's, <laughs> it's the streaming service that was like anti theatrical. And many, most of these, I should say, are, are limited release. It's like, you know, two weeks, sure. three weeks in the theater for Oscar contention or whatever it might be. Um, but, it's one of those situations where I was like, yeah, you know, Disney kind of pulled back on movies and Warner Brothers kind of pulled back on movies. But Netflix is out here and they're like, we got, you know, like 80 films coming out the rest of the year. Like, that's that's an exaggerated number. But like 13 of them are going to theaters. And it, I, I sat with that because I was like, what a weird moment for Netflix, this company in, in the middle of an identity crisis. And I think this ties into the 50% situation where Netflix got to 50% because all of its partners became its competitors. All of these companies that Netflix had in their back, uh, uh, having their back, you know, Disney, Warner Media, NBC Universal, all of them, Paramount, were giving Netflix all of their movies and TV shows and taking a really nice penny for them as they pursued, you know, network and cable and, um, and theatrical. And so they were happy to do that. By 2015, 2016, again, HBO Now is a thing. Disney's about to buy BamTech as, as they get ready to launch Disney Plus. You know, there's all these conversations about owning that relationship directly, owning that consumer relationship. Um, they start clearly pointing out either publicly or, or behind closed doors that they want to get into their own streaming services. And the best way to do that is to pull their content back and offer these exclusively. So if you're Netflix, it's a terrifying moment because all of a sudden your catalog of like 8,000, 9,000 titles is about to dwindle down to like 4,000, 5,000 titles. And that all you're left with are a couple of originals that you might have that are really popular at the time. Uh, a house of Cards, to me, Houses. House of Cards and Orange is New Black and BoJack Horseman, like you you have a few that are really up there, but people are coming to watch movies like Sing. They're coming to watch movies like uh, The Avengers. They're coming to watch shows like The Vampire Diaries. Like These are shows and movies that these companies who license them out or are hyper aware of might bring in audiences or keep audiences on their own platforms. So Netflix has to do what I always describe, and I don't mean this insultingly, as the Warner Brothers DC catch up. There's a moment with Warner Brothers DC where they're looking at Marvel and they're going, we need a universe. Yeah. And we need it quickly. We need it over the next few years. We need to get this done so we were on we can we can compete. And what yeah. you get is kind of a convoluted political, like in terms of inner, inner workings, political situation where the movies don't feel as great, that the, the what's happening behind it doesn't feel as great. And you're kind of stuck in this moment of like, what is 
DC at, at Warner Brothers. What does it look like? Netflix is in that exact same moment, with, but with everything. Where Netflix is going, well, we need reality TV. We need our own original series. We need our own original films. And we need them four times faster and four times the quantity than we did before because we're trying to replace stuff as it's leaving. Now, Netflix still has license, right? Like they hit 50%. That still means 50% of things are licensed. Um, and, and if you look at any kind of Nielsen report, if you look at, you know, what we do with Paired Analytics, we can tell you that shows like Grey's Anatomy or show or movies like Sing 2, uh, movies like Uncharted, which they license out, are just as popular or in demand or even more in demand or popular than some of the originals that are coming out. Like Netflix knows that they need this as well, but they're hyper aware that they have to get to this catalog point where it's like, okay, most of these are originals and most of these are things customers want. They want to make people's favorite show. They want to make people's favorite movie and they need to make a catalog that people are going, okay, well, I like Netflix as it is on its own. The issue is that as Jason pointed out, the quality, according to consumers, has diminished greatly. There was a report from um, Wit Media, which is a research firm that found that, you know, customer satisfaction for Netflix declined by 10% between 2021 and 2022, while others either grew like HBO Max or stayed the same about Disney Plus, which was pretty high. It, it stayed pretty stagnant. You know, it's Apple TV Plus grew a bunch. Like, it's, it's really concerning if you're Netflix because you're saying, well, we're putting up more, we're investing more in originals, but also this customer satisfaction in the US specifically is really started to decline. And you can kind of see that in the amount of subscribers leaving where they're seeing huge subscriber loss on the US side. You know, it's like a subscriber recession in, in, in many ways. Um, and this is a really jarring moment. So the question in the middle of this identity crisis when executives are leaving, creatives are leaving, they're trying to figure things out on the ad side, on the theatrical side, is what is a Netflix original? And is that something that people really want? Is that something that people are getting satisfaction out of? Or at this point, are they paying for access to their favorite show and movie that's not a Netflix original, watching other Netflix stuff, but really staying because they they want access to Seinfeld, right? Like they want access to this thing that they're like unwilling to pay for that. If it's the latter, which a big part of me suspects that it is, and that is not to write off Netflix hits. Netflix hits absolutely exist. The Sandman is a huge hit for Netflix. But if the customer loyalty is to a licensed title, that title becomes a far more expensive in negotiation, right? And negotiation deals because the company behind that, in this case, Sony knows. And B, that show can go wherever. That show does not have to stay on that platform. And so it's terrifying. Now, Netflix, again, makes hits. Netflix has made hit movies. It's made hit TV shows, especially on the TV front. It's got a pretty strong um, animation and uh, unscripted de uh, departments that are, are doing great work. But the value perception of a Netflix original has diminished over the last few years. And that is really hard to claw back from. When, when, when the idea of a Netflix original movie is on par with like you know, a bargain bin type DVD, which I've seen a lot of critics refer to it as. It's not just me talking. That's a lot of critics. That's harder to claw back from than when HBO or FX have a misfire and it's a misfire. And it's like, well, most of the stuff is pretty good. So I, they have my loyalty because I know they do really good work outside of this one thing. Netflix has to go the other way with its originals. Netflix has to say, okay, the more originals we have, the more we have to prove that most of them are, are quality. Um, so it's, it's complicated, right? Like that's a really complicated situation to, to be in. And there's no easy answer. It's like if they could fix it, they would have fixed it. And we'll see how it, it is over the next few years with more development practices going into place. But yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, and we, it's something we talked about last time. The the uh, that that idea of the hollowing out of the middle class, where there's a lot of cheap stuff and a lot of prestige stuff, and you maybe miss the stuff in the middle. But the other the other part of this that we've been talking about over the whole run of this podcast is the this change. Like you you said very early on, I think maybe even our first episode, this idea of the content arms dealer, and you know, and Sony has succeeded there. But the idea that you don't need. A streaming platform necessarily and that maybe some of these companies that currently are putting all their money into streaming platforms will, will realize oh we actually make tv shows and movies and that's a pretty good business and other people can pay us to have them so i wonder if in the long run netflix now might not have to worry quite as much about that as it did in the past not that not i mean the world has changed but Given the economic hardship that's happening in streaming, mm -hmm. I wonder if in the end, um, the strategy, if the strategy was we're not going to get catalog titles from anyone else, so we have to make them ourselves, is going to have to be revised to be, um, we can, right? Like we, we can because that competitor of ours actually d 
wants our money and are, is willing to give us that sitcom that everybody loves, um, even if they have their own streaming service or maybe they're getting out of the streaming business. Yeah. And I think there are some ample opportunities that we discussed on this podcast. You know, hypothetically, NBC Universal decides that we don't want to be in the streaming business. We want to be a Sony, right? We, or we want to be a, a content arms dealer, for lack of a better term, and just hype and sell or license a lot of our programs. I mean, they have an incredible library. Um if I'm Netflix, right, or if I'm Hulu, it's it's that's the thing where I'm like, hey, these shows have huge audiences still, and we want to be able to offer them exclusively. And we sign a you know a seven year deal, like we sign an amazing exclusive deal, and we continue to build our business off that and around it. I think the I think that's 100 percent right, Jason. I think the issue that Netflix faces is this internal pressure almost. I mean, there's definitely external, but it feels more internal pressure to like get ahead of the thing that's going to happen, which which I get. But there's this assumption that it's like, okay, and, and it was proven true for the first few years without question that everyone's going to pull back their content. Things become more walled garden. Warner Brothers movies go to HBO Max. Paramount movies, go, for the most part, go to Paramount Plus, right? Like 20th century movies go to Hulu or Disney Plus. Like that makes a ton of sense. We are seeing that play out. Netflix did not bet on the wrong pony in that way. But – I do think there's like – because they're pushing out so much, because they're constantly trying to kind of see what fits and and, and what's a hit and, try, and trying to work within those parameters, there's no real – at least from my understanding, I could be completely wrong about this. And if you work at Netflix, please feel free to DM me off the record uh, and let me know. But, um, you know, there's no real development process that's in place to stop a lot of these – movies or TV shows that end up becoming memes and not in a good way for Netflix that do more harm to its reputation as a brand, which is so hard to come back from. Uh, and I think, I think they need that. And, you know, there's a really great story by my Puck colleague, Matthew Bellany on Puck, where he was talking about what's going on with one of their major executives, this guy named Tendo, who used to work at, as a Disney executive and was brought over to Netflix to kind of handle their big studio films and franchises. And, Tendo and, and a lot of them have this ability to kind of say, like, I'm this big believer in this. I think we should go ahead and push through with it no matter what. So his big bet was um, uh, Knives Out. And he's like, we should, you know, spend the $450 million right. for the sequel or whatever. And I think it's a big deal. And he had nobody to say – no one could say no to him. He was like, I'm just going to go and do this. And I think that's the right bet. But if you think about other executives who might be in similar places and they're like, I think this is the thing that we have to do and – you're maybe betting on the creator, which is fine, or you're maybe betting on this idea of a genre that you think the platform needs. I think if you don't have a Bloys and his team, or Casey Bloys and his team at HBO, or John Landgraf at FX and his team, who are hyper aware of how to pick talent and how to pick the right show and the right movie and how to pick this thing that you know, suits the brand is not just like, we think this one thing might be a stepping stone for us. We think that, you know, it's more, we think this is incumbent of what we have built and what we are, what we want to be known as. I think you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall and it's easier said than done. Right. I mean, like we, we're sitting here and neither Jason or I are saying like, Oh yeah, well we could solve this. It's very <laughs> difficult to do, especially in a hyper competitive market. But I do think if I was to tell Netflix anything, it'd be like, slow down a little like you're like it's it, it the people who are paying for netflix right now because they want access to their favorite licensed things or because you know they, their favorite show is stranger things or whatever it might be they're going to continue to be there you're still pumping out stuff you're still doing a lot but like they have 13 theatrical movies coming out between now and the end of the year and that doesn't just include other movies that are streaming only you know some of these are international of course there's a global audience but it's like it's almost too much and I think they just need to slow it down. Like their, you know, their whole motto is walk, crawl, run. And I think they kind of need to go back to, to the walk again. Like, let's just take a second and, and, and figure out what, you know, what the overarching plan is. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be something to watch. I, I, I love your advice of just slow down. You, you mentioned the, the Warner DC thing. That was a very similar situation, right? Which is like, Oh, we have to be Marvel. Let's find a way to be Marvel as quickly as possible. And, you know, Marvel didn't become Marvel by flipping a switch. Exactly. Um, but, but like, oh, but we got to catch up. And it's like, we'll throw a bunch of money in it and we'll do a bunch of films. And it didn't. And that's, that's how we got like Batman versus Superman and the Justice League movie and things like that. So maybe, maybe slowing down is a good idea. This episode of Downstream is brought to you by Sofa. 
when you hear about a great new TV show, book, or podcast, what do you do? Do you scribble it down on a notepad? Maybe put it in a to-do app? Or do you do what I do? Forget about it and then feel stuck not knowing what to watch, listen to, or play next? Next time you hear a great new recommendation, throw it in Sofa. With the Sofa app, you can create lists of almost anything. Podcast apps, books, board games, movies and TV shows, music albums, video games, you name it. And then use these lists to decide what your next book is to read, your next movie to watch, next video game to play. Sofa's design is inspired by some of the best productivity apps, but focused on helping you be more intentional with your downtime. You really don't want to keep track of this stuff in your regular to-do manager because this is your downtime. Don't be reminded of work when you're trying to play. Use Sofa and get a dedicated place for organizing your downtime. With Sofa, you can create unlimited lists, sync your data with iCloud, track your activity, and more completely for free. And if you're looking for more power, you can upgrade to Super Sofa and get customized lists with cover images and descriptions. You can add sticky notes to items, see your stats and activity, prioritize items with the shelf, and personalize the look and feel with over 100 different themes. I tried Sofa out It is adorable. It definitely does feel like a task manager for your downtime. And so keeping it separate from your actual tasks is a good idea. You do a quick search. It's got everything. It knows where everything is. You can add a streaming show. I threw in Rutherford Falls. It got canceled. It's sad. But it tells me it's on Peacock and there's two seasons. I can watch that when I want. And my friend Phil tells me I should watch this Elvis movie. So I guess I should do that. Uh, Although I hear Tom Parker, played by Tom Hanks, has got a weird accent, but... It's Dutch. It's it's not that weird. It's just... Anyway, it's on my list now in Sofa, that Elvis movie. When I get three hours, <laughs> I'll watch that movie. Uh, Sofa's available for iPhone, iPad, and will run on a Mac with Apple Silicon like I'm sitting at right now. Start organizing your downtime today by heading over to SofaHQ.com slash downstream. That's Sofa, S-O-F-A-H-Q.com slash downstream to download the app and get more out of your downtime. Thank you to Sofa for supporting downstream. Okay, here's a here's a funny one, which is not streaming, but it's related. So I'm going to throw it in here, which is NBC, the broadcast network here in the United States, is at least being reportedly uh, report from Joe Flynn at the Wall Street Journal reportedly considering no longer programming the 10 p.m. hour and giving that time back to its affiliates, many of which it owns uh, for local programming uh would probably have a knock-on effect where the the local news moves to 10 um where the ratings are better and local news is relatively cheap to produce um and they might expand the local news to an hour or they keep it at half an hour and then that also means that the nbc late night shows get a, an early start so jimmy fallon is coming on at uh 10 30 or 11 instead of at eleven thirty-five, and that could have uh, some benefits there uh, but still a big move, right? Because you're talking about um, the, the major networks have been programming till 11 p.m. for a long time. Now, Fox never programmed uh, the 10 p.m. hour and uh, UPN, the WB uh, uh, and uh, and, you know, CW as its follow on has never programmed the 10 p.m. hour. But the traditional networks have always done 8 to 11 and 7 to 11 on Sundays. So this is you know, this is an interesting, even just possibility of what is network TV looking like going forward. And among the things that um, that Joe Flint's story points out is uh, they put a lot of money into sports rights like NBC. They they have Olympic rights and they have NFL rights and they now have the Big Ten college football rights. They have lots and lots of sports rights that are on you know live sports. So they're mostly like on weekends during the day. Uh, and maybe that's a better business for them to be in than programming seven extra hours of m- largely scripted at 10 p.m. primetime. Uh, what do you think about this development? I'm for it. I, I think about this and I was like, you know, whenever I think of broadcast in general, I think about my parents because they're, you know, kind of the last vestige of people who are tuning into live programming on the major broadcasters, like when it's happening, like they're hyper aware of when Law and Order SVU or Law and Order Organized Crime are on, like they they know what the shows are. And they don't care about the 10 p.m. And because they have the DVRs, they record stuff, and they watch it whenever, you know, they're also like they, they, they get the next day streaming thing, like they're hyper aware of it. And they're kind of like, Oh, well, if this is on, you know, streaming, then I can go watch it there on the next day. And I don't necessarily have to watch it live. And so if you're 
NBC, you know, I'm sure that having shows on on NBC may drive Peacock usage, but I imagine it's not a huge number. I imagine if they're doing cross promotion, like, you know, the audience that is going to sign up for Peacock is not necessarily going to do it because the show was on at 10 p.m. and that made them sign up. I do think you can take some of those shows that are going to premiere at 10 p.m., put them on Peacock and have maybe a somewhat of a larger audience, not, well, that maybe not larger, but somewhat of a more driven audience where you can own that relationship directly. But yeah, give it back to the affiliates. I think put the money into sports where you know you're making money. Take some of that programming away where you know that the it's declining week after week after week. And you're trying to find something that works for scripted series in like a a, a moment where the demand for scripted series in a ver- in a time slot is disappearing. Like I, I think I looked at the number of scripted series airing between Monday and Thursday on NBC between in primetime was something like 40% or like 60% of it was Dick Wolf on NBC. And I was like, yeah. sure. Right. Like, like, like that audience might be into it. But even then, if you were to say like this, the new Dick Wolf shows on Peacock, like I think about again, my parents, they would sign up for Peacock. They'd be like, okay, I'm going to go here and watch the show. Like, you know, and I'll watch it there whenever I want to watch it. But I do think if we're thinking about just the channel, you know, what's the biggest draw for NBC? It's it's sure, maybe some Dick Wolf, but it's not necessarily scripted programming anymore. It is sports. It is like sports yeah. and game shows and like unscripted. And yeah, give that hour back to the affiliates. Like I, I would. I would. That's an, in my opinion, that's like an easy decision. And I'm sure mm. that I'm missing some huge context. And I'm sure somebody at NBC Universal will tell me what I'm missing. But for me, it's just what? like, yeah. You don't well, the two, need that spot the, anymore. The two counter arguments are one, one of the greatest suppliers of NBCU programming is uh, NBCU. <laughs> so the people, uh, according to Joe Flint's report, you know, people in the studio are like, mm, you know, we really like selling shows to NBC and, you know, you're going to reduce what we can do. I mean, that's a, that's, I get. That's an interesting internal argument to make. And that there is also another argument to make, which is NBC shows that pop up on Peacock drive usage of Peacock. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you could put shows on Peacock anyway and drive people there for them. Um, I guess, you know, the idea that running the act of running a show on NBC, but you don't, but you not watching it leads you to Peacock so you can watch it. That's a weird argument to make right <laughs> that it's like it doesn't need to be viewed it's the act of not seeing it on nbc <laughs> that gets you to watch it on peacock i don't know but it, it's yeah those i don't know i, I i'm kind of with you that if you're nbc if you think about this if you think about this traditionally you're like oh no don't abandon time what, what are you talking about there but if you think about nbc's highest rated show which is sunday night football you know right and you start to think about nbc is the olympics and and football, and now it's going to be Big Ten college football as well, and Notre Dame football that it's had for a while. Like, that's a huge business for NBC. Late night is a huge business for NBC. And I say they're programming seven nights a week. They're not. Saturday, they're, they're, they're not programming, essentially. And Saturday Night Live even airs live on the West Coast now because they've given up on Saturday programming, as most of the networks did long ago. So, I don't know. I, I'm kind of like... As a traditionalist, it disturbs me. Uh, as a person looking at the future of the business, it totally, it's almost like, well, why didn't they do this sooner? And the answer is, by the way, they did sort of try to do this sooner when they were trying to keep Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien at the same time. They put Jay Leno on uh, five nights a week at 10 p.m. and they kind of like abandoned it, but the ratings were bad and it, and, and the, that the worked out great for everyone in yeah. that situation. And the affiliates screamed, but the thing, because it was a bad lead into their news, but the affiliates are going to love, and for people outside the U.S., I know this seems weird, but like every city has its own channel and they use network programming and they also have local programming. And it's a combination of those things. And I know that that's unusual in some countries. But here, you know, what this would also do is put their newscast on at 10. And the ra- generally, a 10 o'clock newscast is more profitable than an 11 o'clock newscast because there are more people watching. And so they'll probably be happy and Jimmy Fallon gets a better time slot and Seth Meyers gets a better time slot. And that's good for NBC late night. So 
yeah, on that level, it's just like, well, why why would you not do this? Well, and the thing is, too, I mean, NBC, exactly what you just said about how NBC's biggest ratings drivers are sports. Guess what's getting increasingly more expensive because yes, exactly. of more competitors? Like, it's an area where if NBC wants to be in those negotiations, you know, for anyone from the NFL to college football to the NHL to, to the NBA to whomever it is, now gets to say to a Disney, which pays top dollar for uh, its stuff at ESPN uh, or, or an NBC or CBS can now say, listen, you have friends, uh, new friends in the space. They're called Apple and Amazon, and they're willing to give us more money than you can think of because they want to get into sports and they sell dog food and iPhones and they're fine and they will they will pay for it and they're happy to pay for it. If you're NBC, your streaming service is a giant hole in your pocket still. Uh, you're figuring things out, but you're paying a lot of money there. Your revenue on the broadcast and cable side is diminishing. At Comcast, you're not necessarily seeing the growth. It will certainly in uh, cable um, or, or in, like in, in television, rather. Um, broadband has slowed down in the last few quarters. The revenue is declining. It's still strong. We're not, no one is out here being like, you know, boohoo Comcast. Like, so we're sorry for them. But it is not as strong as a business as it once was. And there's a lot more expenses based on non-guaranteed bets that are kind of like, okay, well, we're going to sell this paid off. The one guaranteed bet NBC has is sports. It's like the one – that mm-hmm. and, and like the Masked Singer or like whatever, like whatever their, their version right. of So You Think You Can Dance is. Like those shows – Pretty much guaranteed bets. Dick Wolf, guaranteed bet. Uh, and and sports. Sports being the biggest one. Yeah, yep. if the answer to being able to continue to pay Dick Wolf in order to bet on sports or continue betting on sports um, and, and do all these other things, you know, buy more some unscripted series based on, you know, adaptations out of South Korea or whatever, which is what The Masked Singer was. And I think that's NBC. I could be wrong. It could be Fo- it's Fox. Max Masked Singer is Fox. But, you know, they have a version of it. They have some kind of version of it. Yeah, there, um, there's plenty of reality to go around, yes. Yeah, like they, the... the, the best thing to do is look at what's an underperforming time slot that if you're looking at your your linear business that we don't necessarily think we're going to revive over the course of you know four to five days uh that we can actually give back to the affiliates and we think it's going to help our late night which you know does well for us on social is good here and we also might be able to save some money in the long run and, and spend it invested elsewhere where it makes more sense that to me is like everyone talks about david zaslav coming into warner brothers discovery and like ruining what hbo max is but there are cost effective measures that have to be taken the nbc giving up 10 p.m giving back to the affiliates to me is the most like obvious and um, some people in the studios, of course, are affected. They, they make television for it. It's a, it's a whole hour per week gone. But like that to me is like, yeah, you, you do it. Like you do it now. That's just an easy thing I, I, from a paper, an on paper perspective to do. Of course, never easy when there's real people involved. And that means that less shows might mean layoffs. Or there's other things that come involved. And that's really difficult. But on paper, that trade off. Unless that 10 p.m. is really driving Peacock, like, activation and viewership stuff. And I don't think it is because they were flat last quarter. They didn't add any subscribers. 10 p.m. slot was there. Um, I think it's just kind of time to be like, yeah, okay, let's see this. And the nice thing is they can always go back. If whatever their bet with, like, giving it back to the affiliates doesn't do anything and they want to put more programming there, they can figure that out. They like, okay, we're going to go back to the 10 p.m. Like we we can we can make that decision in a few years or like whatever it may be. But I think right, right now, again, with that, all of those things burning a very big hole in your pocket, this is one way to be like, oh, we can maybe start to sew it up a little bit. Well, side topic from this, uh, NBC Universal has a deal, uh, overall deal with producer Mike Schur, who uh, worked on The Office and co-created Parks and Rec and The Good Place and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And so they signed him to an overall deal. He makes comedies. Really smart guy, funny guy. But recently, they they did a series order of a direct-to-Peacock, I believe, Field of Dreams series. And it was a, it was all ready to, to start shooting. And they, they, they killed it. Um, last I saw, they were trying to shop it elsewhere, but nobody's reported that they bought it. So I guess they didn't. Um, and they just canceled his, the show that he executive produced, uh, Rutherford Falls, which is a Peacock original. And it just struck me that Mike Schurst seems to be the guy who has had all his fingerprints on all of these successful network sitcoms. But we've talked before, I know, about this, ch- the challenge of sitcoms working in streaming not that sitcom catalogs don't work in streaming but how do you get an original new sitcom to work 
as a hit in streaming and how that is that is a trick that seems to be a lot harder to pull off than with a drama series. Yeah. Um, and so I was curious if you had any thoughts about the these these two examples where you've got a you've got a dependable producer who is able to make successful streaming TV series, but or a successful network TV series. But now we've got two high profile projects of his, one that got killed before it could even be shot, and the other one got canceled after two seasons on streaming. Yeah, I mean, I think I've said this on this podcast uh, a while back, but creating comedies and, and specifically sitcoms for streaming is extremely difficult. One, sitcoms need about, a, a, you know, two or three seasons to really get into who these characters are. You know, let's say two seasons. A lot of these shows, the economics of how they work uh, don't allow for a second season renewal a lot of the time. It's, if we think about how Netflix operates, right, like the economics of that, it make it very, very difficult. And so you don't really get a chance to understand what the show is trying to be. But two, the biggest thing to Jason's exact point, you know, he, he said it perfectly. They're not as successful as dramas. And what do we know about dramas? Dramas are appointment TV. What does an NBC put in a 10 p.m. slot? All right. It's it's not a, it's 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 not a comedy. They're not putting comedies in there. It's dramas. It's a very yeah. specific type of drama. It's either a procedural or it's like some sci-fi thing. And that's because these are shows that are appointment television. People will make a, a, a will open that will turn on their TV at 10 p.m. and they'll or they'll continue watching. You know, it's why you have ER as running for as long as you do in that 9 p.m. 10 p.m. block. Like it's it's why you have Dick Wolf between eight and ten PM. Like it's it's a very specific reason. Comedies were always the thing that kind of kickstarted the block. It was always like, well, you wanted a comedy to get people in kind of this happy mood, jovial mood, and then they're watching this procedural. If you're smart with curation on programming, you go comedy procedural, comedy drama. You break it up because nobody wants to watch three hours of like intense dramas. That's unless it's they're marathoning a show. That's a lot right. for people to do. Um it's what makes comedies really strong retention drivers on streaming because when people are done watching Handmaid's Tale, they don't want to watch another depressing show. They want to watch Rick and Morty. They want to watch a, a comedy. Uh, they want to watch Welcome to Wrexham, which I'm watching right now. It's just great. Uh, they want to watch something that takes their mind off it that is lighthearted. But they're not necessarily signing up for a platform because of a comedy. You know, rarely do we see huge comedies draw in – huge subscribers and the ones that do are are old it's the office it's friends it's you know uh south park it's uh seinfeld these are not new shows that got a that are really succeeding it's their old shows that people have an uh, affection for and so they sign up for them i think the toughest gig right now um in hollywood is trying to make comedy work on streaming because it, it, it does for certain audiences for certain taste clusters but it is not going to bring in huge swaths of subscribers the way dramas are. And so when you're pitching, you know, that's an that's a business statistic that executives are going to have in mind. Now, if they're really great at what they do, a Casey Boys, a John Langraff, they understand the vitalness of a strong comedy. HBO and FX put out insanely good comedies over and over and over again. They are hyper aware of it. What We Do in the Shadows is like one of the best shows on television right now. You know, you've got Welcome to Wrexham, you've got Rap, uh, I don't know if I can say this word, but S-H-I-T. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> you get, you've, got, uh, you've got that on HBO Max. Like, these are strong shows that they really believe in. Our Flag Means Death is a comedy like that they're really into. Mm -hmm. Those aren't the shows that are going to get strong marketing budgets. Those are not, you know, very often, they're not the shows that are necessarily going to bring people in, but they are the shows that people really think of when they think of brand awareness and that they love. You know, I my favorite Netflix show is I Think You Should Leave Now. My favorite... FX show is what we do in the shadows. One of my favorite HBO shows is Righteous Gemstones. These are all comedies, but they're not Succession or House of the Dragon or The Rings of Power. And that and they're much harder to be like, hey, this is going to bring people in. And that's kind of what we need. But they are going to make that value perception of that platform so increasingly um, uh, um, high that you, that you do need them. And I think with sitcoms, Unless you have a platform where you have an audience that's coming in for dramas and they're finding the sitcom after, it's really hard to tell people to come in for a sitcom, even from someone like Mike Shore, um, than it is. You know, that's just – I think it's hard. I think it's a really hard job right now. Yeah. It is. You make good points. There are good comedies out there. Um, I, I think it's funny the FX Factory has, has done a good job with mm -hmm. them. And there, there you've got Cable. But it's allowing them to build up around run the um you know the challenge here is comedies work best I think with a catalog, but you have to succeed enough to build a catalog, and that's really hard. 
And I don't know if anybody's cracked it. I, I think Peacock has really struggled. And it's funny because this is NBC's brand is comedy. Yeah. Uh, and they've really struggled to launch comedies on Peacock. Well, and just know. think too, like even when it was linear days, remember Community? Like yeah. Community is now one of the most beloved modern sitcoms or, you know, modern comedies. I should say not a sitcom, modern comedies yeah. of the last 20 years. That show went from home to home to home because people were like, oh, I like it, you know, but I, it doesn't make sense for us financially. Yeah. So it, it just, it finally ended up on Yahoo. Like it ended Yahoo. up on a yep. website. Like it was, I think, I think that's the definition of where we are with comedy. It doesn't matter if you're Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland. I mean, unless you have Rick and Morty, you know, it doesn't matter if you're them. It doesn't matter if you're Mike Shore. It doesn't matter if you're Norman Lear. It, it's hard to do a comedy. Well, it's not hard to – well, it's always hard to create a great comedy, great show. But it's not sure. hard – it hasn't gotten hard to create a good comedy. It has gotten harder to make money off of good comedies. And right. that is – again, when all of these companies have these huge things burning a hole in their pocket, it comes to a point where they're like, if we're going to – if we can save $15 million on this comedy, that might be incredibly good to add that to the $200 million budget for our show about – elves or dragons or whatever but because we mm -hmm. think that makes more of a financial return right now and we really need to bring in customers and really need those hits that's where they're going to kind of sacrifice even though each department has their own budget like, like it, it it's where you know overarchingly this is going to happen and it sucks because comedies are still the backbone of of entertainment in, a, in so many ways and there are great ones out there it's just becoming one increasingly harder to find and two increasingly harder to get those made and the thing I always come back to over and over again is, you know, the show for me and for many others, if you look at top 10 Netflix shows of all time lists, the show that defined Netflix for me was BoJack Horseman. And that show would never get made today on Netflix or so it would here's go my, past the season. Here's my million dollar idea. And this is like a footnote to when you said before that it's not like we are we have all the answers. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to give you my ridiculous million dollar uh, pitch here or multi-million dollar pitch probably. Which is this, which is I would if I was doing a development for comedy for a streamer. Um, I would fund a bunch of comedy. I, I would go back to old school and I would do pilot season. Um, I would get a whole bunch of comedy pilots and maybe a few extra scripts. Um, from that, I would pick a smaller set and, and authorize a season. And at the end of that season, I would look, I would look for one or two that I thought were really, really had legs and I would give them an enormous episode order. I would say, this is great make me 50 and then you're done. <laughs> You've got three years <laughs> and because in some ways that's what you want is you want the successful thing. That's going to be a hit that will get you a catalog. Um, I'm not sure the modern, like here's 10 episodes or 12 episodes. And then you go away for a year is ever going to build a catalog. You almost want to find that hit and then mass produce it and then say, no, no, no. I want you to go back to the old days. I want you to give me 20 of these next year and 20 more the year after that. And then, you know, 15 more after that. And then we never speak again. <laughs> um, and I think I wonder if somebody will try to, to do that. The beauty of owning your own broadcast TV network is you could do this, right? Like that's the exactly. that's the beauty of being CBS is CBS can just do sitcom development and find the hits and make 150 episodes of it. And you turn around and you're like, that show has how many episodes? And you can't believe that it's even still on the air. Um, but I, I, I just feel like this is one of those funny areas where I think comedy development works better in a traditional broadcast model. There, yeah. I said it. I agree. I 100% agree. It's weird. So so you could emulate it if you're a streamer. But the best thing to do is for step one, buy yourself a TV network. <laughs> And then put sitcoms on it and find and the hits. If you, and if you get around the FTC buying yourself a TV network, um, right. Apple and Amazon would like to know how you did that. So just, you know, just you could send them a, a memo. Just a brief, exactly. Brief All right. Um, before we go, time for a couple of letters. Um, uh, you can always reach us uh, as well. If you're a Relay FM member, you can reach us in the Relay FM Discord, which is where uh, this note came from Matt. Uh, Matt says, uh, Disney recently took Avatar off of Disney Plus temporarily as it promotes a theatrical re-release. Could this be the new Disney vault of the streaming era? I hadn't considered the companies might temporarily remove titles from their services as a strategic play. Pretty interesting, huh? I miss this story in like at, like entirely. So thank you, Matt, for sending it to me. This is absolutely <laughs> 
<laughs> this is so funny because that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's not actually the vault, but it is them saying like, yes, we are going to remove this because if it's not available on Disney Plus, then pe- more people may go see it in a theater. Um, which like maybe like I like I, I see the logic and it makes a ton of sense and it doesn't hurt them to take their own thing off the platform and put their own thing back in theaters. Like that's. Mm. That's the type of decision I, I would make if I was in their shoes too. But it's so funny because here's the thing about the Disney fault, if we're being honest about it. Like evil in the sense of people should be able to buy movies when they want. Like, you know, this was the whole promise of the streaming age. You should have access yeah. to things that you want when you want it. I totally get it. There you know, are people fan, who couldn't like we watched we showed my daughter a bootleg. A, a, I actually copied a friend's DVD of Sleeping Beauty because it was not available. And my daughter was obsessed with Sleeping Beauty. This and is it what was I'm not saying. Available. This is what I'm saying. Like I, I from a fan perspective, I get hitting the vault. But like it, it was so smart for them. Like Super they, sm- so smart. I, and like, I know they, multiple friends of mine had their parents, their their mothers in particular, buying copies of Disney movies when they were released so that their grandchildren, their their prospective grandchildren that might exist would have access to classic Disney movies. Now that yeah. is power. This is what I mean. Like Disney figured it out. <laughs> if it, it, the thing I, my rule, my general rule, rule of thumb for business, uh, if is always like, if they continue doing it, it's working. If, if it uh, didn't yeah. work, they would stop. And so, you know what? You know what? I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Power to Disney. You know what? Take Avatar, a movie whose characters, I can't remember any of them. I know that they're blue and they have hair. Uh, Take that movie off Disney Plus, put it in theaters for a few weeks leading up to Avatar 2. Don't bet against James Cameron. I'm sure people will go watch it. And then it'll be right back on Disney Plus afterwards. You know what? If anyone has figured out the streaming, the theatrical (laughs) landscape, it's going to be Disney. So well done, Bob. You know, truly, that's I. What's that's incredible? Yeah, what's going to get people off their butts and into a theatrical re-release? And it is, it's a new HDR 4K, yada yada yada. And obviously, it'll be on back on Disney Plus at some point. But like, what's going to get people out to actually go to the theater if it's sitting on Disney Plus? Not nope, nothing. It's not going to happen. So you take it off, then you create some buzz around it, and people are like, oh yeah, I should go see that in the theater. It's in 3D. You know, it's got all the things about it that you should probably see it in the theater. I've only ever seen Avatar once and it was in the theater because the 3D is such a part of that movie. I watched Avatar and then I watched its remake or not its remake, its original version, um, Pocahontas, which Ugh. was, you know, just so much better. I, you know, here's the thing. My best friend loves Avatar to an insane amount. And so I'm going to go watch the new one with her in theaters because I just want to watch her watch it because uh, sure. I think it'll be fun. But I just like, I can't. I just can't. I, I mean, I love James Cameron more than any, like, not more than anything, but I love him as a director. But it's just like, yeah, I can't. But anyways, that's for another podcast. Um, this one's from Jim. Uh, a quick thought that Apple might be able to leverage live sports NFL Sunday ticket ideally with their to be released AR goggles to create an immersive watching experience. Mm. I personally wouldn't want to watch a game through strap on goggles, but someone might. It's a hypothetical example of bringing two properties together in synergy. Just a thought. Love to your mothers from the 615 Jim. So um, here's my response to this, because I think this is an interesting point, but I think Jim misses the the example. NFL Sunday ticket, if and Apple and Amazon are both rumored to be bidding for it, and this would be for next season since the NFL season's about to start. Um, and uh, the problem is that it's a rebroadcast of existing broadcasts. the 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 beauty of Sunday ticket as a product is you're getting access to every NFL game instead of just the one that's on your local TV channel. So that's not something that Apple's going to really have any opportunity to impact in terms of creating an AR experience or a VR experience. However, their baseball deal, those are exclusives. Their major league soccer deal, that's an exclusive. Now we've seen with baseball, baseball at least has started not that different from your traditional cable TV baseball broadcast. It's basically just the MLB network broadcast with a few upgrades, but it's early yet. The places where Apple has complete control over the production of the broadcast, that's where there is the potential for Apple to innovate on what a sports broadcast might look like, including potentially some sort of 
aspect, assuming they come out with VR goggles, as is rumored, um, to do something uh, that's like a VR broadcast, it would be in something like that, a, a program that they produce that uh, they control. And so I know MLB Network is producing baseball for them, but like that is a, a contractor relationship. If Apple wants yeah. to um, tell them we're going to do this in 3D or we're going to do this in 4K or we bought a drone for you, which they totally did. There's a drone now. Um, then they'll do it. So uh, so I, I think this is th- this point, Julia, um, you know, f- that Jim makes here is good. I, I think he missed it, missed the boat with Sunday ticket. It's the wrong example. But I think that there and this is true for any other uh, company uh, that has. You know, the people who own the exclusive rights to a, a sports broadcast, they're the ones who have the potential to innovate. We've seen that since Fox took the NFL uh, contract away from CBS and created the Fox box. That's like yep. every score bug ever was created because the guy in charge of Fox Sports was like, who came from the UK, was like, you know, we put up the soccer score, we're going to put up the football score. And everybody said, oh, no, you can't do that. And now you couldn't live without it. The first down line, like all of these things, they come from the producer who controls the broadcast. And if you get a tech company like Apple to be that, and Apple is doing that with Friday Night Baseball and with all of the MLS starting next year, that's where you're going to see an innovation. Yeah, agreed. That's my that's my rant about that. I put that one I in love there it. for me. That's I that's love the, it. Sports corner. That's where you. And and, and by the way, yeah, in the sports corner a little bit. And by the way. I want them to do this, right? Like, I, I'm so sad that that Apple's Friday Night Baseball is just a stock boring baseball broadcast i mean it's fine it's fine but they have the opportunity unchained from the rest of television to do something different and they haven't so maybe next year wait till next year that's what the cubs fans say guys also i i think i we should pressure jason into making sports corner an actual part of the podcast so we do it every episode every other episode so add us with your with your support for putting Sports Corner so, yeah. in. And if you've got other Sports Corner thoughts, uh, otherwise, we're going to be talking about the Jets probably, right, Julia? <laughs> oh, God. Poor Jets. <laughs> it's already off to a bad start. <laughs> Those poor team. Oh, uh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, okay, one last one. This is Mark from uh, the 27... Departement 27, I'm not, I can't speak French, in France. I don't live in the U.S., but I use a DNS service to access U.S. streaming providers. As long as I still pay for my subscriptions, do the networks care? Presumably, they're obliged to make some effort to enforce regional distribution agreements. But are DNS or VPN users who cheat their location something that really matters to them on a macro level, or is it not relevant? More broadly, what's the future of region-specific content? How long until everything is like Apple TV Plus, where everything's available everywhere? I'm just. I also think this is where my brain is. I think it would be Departement Vancet. I think that would yeah, be see, if I remember. I can't my do the French. numbers. But I remember my Thank French you. from, from growing you. up in Canada. Mark, yeah. <laughs> Mark from the 27. From the 27 in France. Um, so I, because I was trying to remember that, I, I missed it. I'm reading the letter now, though. Oh, okay. yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so like, do they, I, I know that they've got to, they've got to enforce geography, but like, it, presumably Mark has a, a, probably a U.S. credit card, paying for the U.S. services, watching them overseas using means that he's, he's essentially a U.S. customer. They and he's not, and he's paying, so like I, I right I, I would think that there is some level of of due diligence that they're required to perform, but otherwise yeah. I'm not sure that they care. Yeah, I I don't think it's as big as like you if you weren't paying for it. I do think the only thing they would care about is they used data that they collect on people's interests on local regions to then help further licensing and acquisition decisions to kind of be like oh you know if 60 percent of our audience in france really likes these these types of local series then that might be something that we look into creating a version of or that might be something that we want to uh, um, license more of acquire more of if you you know if, if most of let's say France's Netflix audience is using a DNS to access the U.S. account, then it's really hard to make those decisions. But even then, I, I don't think most of the, you know, Netflix France audience subscriber base is doing that. So I think they're kind of, they're much more lenient with this. and Like, they could care, but for them, as long as people are paying at this point, I think especially Netflix or whoever it might be, 
it's just not as big of a deal. Now they'll say it is. They have to. Right? Like we're not trying mm. to support people using – like they can't go out and be like, yeah, do whatever you want to get around it. But I think from people I've talked to, they, this has not really come up in conversation. This is like – piracy has and, and uh, of course um, – uh, like people account sharing have like that's come up over and over again. But you know, people using a DNS to uh access a different server or to access a subscription service in a different server, so that way they can watch you know different regions um programming. That's not something that's come up that yeah, that often. Not not a high priority. And what do you think in the long in the long run? I, his question about region specific content availability. I assume in the long run as many things as uh, worldwide as possible will be the trend but yeah. there it'll but that'll probably take a while to shake out yeah i mean content is becoming much and much more borderless if we think about you know what's the most watched platform in the world it's not either of these or any of the ones we've been saying it's youtube uh mm. and youtube is effectively i mean it is borderless right like people watch creators in whatever country they want based on their interests um if we think about the leader in originals it's netflix uh, Netflix creates originals to be global, right? The idea is that the everyone, anyone can watch anything anywhere. Twice Squid Game becomes a big hit in all of its countries. Um, the, where you see the region locking is really in the in. I mean, there's definitely some in every single country, but the big conversations are always the U.S. Right? It's always like NBC strikes a deal with Hulu for domestic rights, and then Disney for certain international rights, and the region locking of those shows become really, really difficult to get around. So catalog stuff is always. Gonna to be a bit of an issue um as as it as it gets about out local stuff is always going to be a bit of an issue if um if netflix france uh, acquires a local production um in france it might stream specifically on like a, a a channel or like a smaller streaming service in france but then it becomes a global original for netflix like all of those become really complicated but in terms of original content and as companies start thinking more of original content they start to think of it with much more of a global eye in mind so there's always going to be region locking issues but i think it'll become less and less with each passing year it'll never go away but i think it'll become less of a thing yeah it'll fade away yeah all right. Well, that is going to wrap up this episode, but you know, we'll be back in two weeks to talk about more stuff. So if you want to get us into Sports Corner or do anything else, you can send us an email downstream at relay.fm or uh, a message on our Discord uh, for Relay FM members. It's a question mark, ask downstream, or just tweet at us at downstream pod. Love to your mothers. And you can find our director of strategy and also, of course, Parrot Analytics director of strategy, Julia at Loudmouth, Julia on Twitter. I'm at Snell on Twitter and at sixcolors.com. And until next time, Julia, enjoy your jets. Enjoy your Apple event. Thank you. Thank you. That'll will that will be enjoyable, unlike the Jets, probably. Aw. See you in two weeks. Bye.